Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. He said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And Behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Father, I pray that as we see Jesus, we might beg him to stay. Beg Him to commune with us, to unite us to You. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Earlier in the service, we repeated the words of the Gloria Patri. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. We do that every Sunday, repetitively. And it's not the only thing we repeat over and over again, Each Sunday, there were a lot of things like that. And perhaps you've gone through the motions some Sunday morning and you've wondered why it is that we don't get a little more creative. Why not insert some different words? Change it up a little bit. Why repeat these same things over and over again? Years ago, uh, when I was fresh out of college, I was watching TV and there was a scene that stuck with me ever since. Uh, a character in the show had lost his memory, and a psychologist was quizzing him. He was doing one of those psychology things where they list things, and they ask you to just answer whatever comes into your mind. Just tell me whatever comes into your mind. The idea being that perhaps this amnesiac had deeper memories, things that he hadn't lost, and they would be able to use this to figure out who he was, because no one could identify with him. So the Psychologist throws out all of these phrases, hoping that some memory will be triggered and nothing happens and it's frustrating. And and in his frustration, the psychologist says, what is the chief end of man? And without thinking, the amnesiac replies, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Not only was that fascinating to me in the context of the story, but I'd never heard those words before. I believed them but I'd never heard them exactly that way. I have the BBC to thank for introducing me to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And I've been grateful ever since. The thought that you could lose everything, your own sense of identity, but that somehow buried deep inside could be that realization, that most fundamental statement of who we are and what it means to be human, that fascinated me. And as a result, I guess... I've become a little bit obsessed with the idea of of being formed by the words of our faith in such a way that, that you can't take them from me. 
and they can't take them from you. I want you, for the rest of your life, whenever you hear somebody say, glory be to the Father, in your mind to say, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, every time you hear somebody say, Christ has died, say, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, and to have these words buried deep within you so that they cannot be taken away, so that we live day by day in the authority and the goodness of the word of Christ. If you turn to our text, a really fascinating account. We've journeyed to the other side of the sea, to the land of the Gadarenes, and here Jesus, in our text, will speak only one word, and we'll see more snapshots of people's reactions to the authority of Jesus. We talked about his authority over creation last time, and now we turn our attention to Christ's authority over the darkness. The darkness is one of those things that we fear. Many of us grow up afraid of the dark. I was talking to a student at Worldview this past week, and at the closing ceremony, he was showing me everything he'd bought at the book table. He had in his hands this scarred Worldview Academy Frisbee. It looked like he'd have been through the wars. And I said, wow, you, you must have been really using this hard since last year because it was last year's Frisbee. We do a new one each year. I won't explain the logic, but um, he says, no, I haven't used this Frisbee all year long. It's been hanging on my wall. I waited to come back to get the new Frisbee before using the old one. This is just the damage from this week at camp. The thing is, the new Frisbee glows in the dark, and he's going to hang it in his bedroom wall. And I said, isn't that going to keep you from sleeping, to have this Frisbee glowing over your bed at all times? He's like, no, I always have lights on. The closet light will be on, a nightlight will be on, because I'm afraid of the dark. He's not alone in that regard. Many of us are afraid of the dark. Uh, You may not think you are, but then you find yourself in the dark, and there's strange noises, and suddenly you're afraid. At the same time that we're afraid of the dark, we're often obsessed with it. There's something about that fear. It's not the fear of, of, oh, I want to stay away from this. Sometimes it's the fear of fascination. In the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis famously wrote that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. In the broadly evangelical church, at least since the days of this present darkness, we have fallen into the latter camp. Interested in the darkness that we fear, You'll meet a lot of people in the church who've never read this present darkness, maybe never even heard of it, but whose beliefs about the darkness have been inherited from that fiction. Ours is not a healthy fear of the darkness all too often. We are afraid in the way that leads to obsession. We are like uh, Denethor in The Lord of the Rings who stared so long into the crystal, the palantir, that he began to believe the lies it told him and to lose his hope. We believe in the authority of the darkness, sometimes much more than we trust in the authority of Christ. If we read this account at the end of Matthew 8, and the main question we have 
is tell me more about the demons, then we've missed the lesson that this story teaches. Because it's not a lesson about the authority of the darkness. It's a lesson about the authority of Christ. Let's think for a little bit about what we don't know about the darkness and what we actually do. Because there's a lot about the darkness that we think we know, but we really don't. Most of what we know about Satan and demons comes not from the Bible, but from speculative fiction and folklore. And yet we hold on to these things with confidence, believing often that the Bible does teach these things. And then we go back and try to find them and are mystified that they're not actually there. The problem is, the Bible does talk about these things. It warns us against these things. There's just much less about them in Scripture than we suppose. There's a reason for that. The problem is, the Bible mentions these things very directly. It mentions them, though, without explaining them. And so we have a bit of an invitation to fill in the blanks, to elaborate on those silences. Otherwise, we'd have to live with them. The closest parallel I can think to, or think of, um, to compare this to, is kind of like, I don't know, think of end times prophecy. There are a lot of people who believe they have a very firm handle on what the Bible teaches about the end of the world, so firm that they can make vast, complicated charts illustrating exactly what's going to take place. And if you learn about those things from the charts and not from the Bible, you imagine that the Bible says a whole lot more about these things and in a lot more detail than it actually does. The Bible does speak about them, but it doesn't speak in as great detail and with as much clarity as some people would have you believe. How can we know about things? that the Bible never explains. It's simple. We can make up stories about them and forget that we made them up and pass them down as if Scripture taught them. That's what human beings do. We take our imagination, a lot of poetic license, and we make up for God's silences. When the Bible is sparing in its explanations, We should hold our speculation lightly. We should be conscious that that is what we're doing. I'm not saying it's wrong to speculate. It's wrong to try to connect the dots. Just remember, that's what it is. A human attempt to connect the dots. It's not the same thing as the Bible clearly teaching something. We have a tendency to forget that we're speculating. In fact, we have a tendency to take the areas where we've speculated and treat them with more importance the areas where God has been very clear. If you've ever experienced a church where it is okay to agree to disagree, to think whatever you want to think about the mystery of predestination and election, but it is essential to believe in Christ's secret pre-second coming return and the timing of that return on a significant seven-year future tribulation timeline, then you know exactly what it feels like to have elevated human speculation above clear teaching of Scripture. And that is not a place we want to be. And that is exactly what we do 
when we give the demons the priority in the story over the one who exercises authority over them. There's a lot we don't know about the darkness. But there are some things we do know. We do know, for example, that the darkness is real. That there truly is a spiritual realm. In Ephesians 6, Paul tells us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And you might wish that that was the introduction to a whole paragraph in which he lists the names of the demons who control things behind the scenes. He doesn't. And I don't think that's where he intends us to go either. Once he says those things, he starts talking about the whole armor of God. And that's where he wants us to dwell. There's been a contemporary interest, a revival, so to speak, in demons and demonology. Often they're treated the same way that the gods are treated in polytheistic nature religion, only instead of having a god of the river or a god of the forest, you have a demon of depression, a demon of credit card debt, and the system functions more or less in the same way. It's an outlook that has points of departure in Scripture, but isn't actually based on Scripture at all. It's not how the Bible tells us to think about the spiritual realm. It's just what some men have thought about what the Bible says. But on the other hand, on the other hand, we don't want to go the, the path of the materialist that Lewis calls out and say, because of this, because of this excess, that must mean there is no spiritual realm, that there is no darkness, that there is no evil beyond the drama of bad human choices. One thing we know is that the darkness is real. There's another thing we know that this text testifies to, which is that Christ has triumphed over the darkness, that he has authority over the darkness. You might say that's the whole point of what Matthew is telling us here. Now this authority, like the authority that we saw last time, is not uncontested. As Jesus exercises his authority, it gets challenged once again. The authority of Christ is tested by the demons. It's actually rejected by the people who seem to be delivered, but it is vindicated by the pigs. So let's think about that. The authority of Christ actually makes the demons beg. The demons beg Jesus. They implore him. They entreat him in a weird kind of parallel to the way the leper approaches Jesus and the centurion. They ask him to give them something. Now, it's a challenge because they're trying to negotiate with him. They're trying to, to direct the course, the flow of his authority they're not coming like the leper and the centurion. They're not coming forward to meet the king in trust. They're coming forward in fear. They're coming forward afraid that Jesus is on the scene, that they have something to worry about in his arrival, and that they need to control the outcome, to channel what he does. They respond to him. They approach him. And in each case, whether we're talking about the demons or the people, you might see a kind of two-part movement. There's a response and there's a request. They respond, as we've been seeing as a pattern here, both verbally and 
physically in their gestures. They come forward like they're presenting themselves to Jesus. These demon-possessed men who had been blocking the path into the tombs come out of the tombs and present themselves wailing before Jesus, verbally acknowledging Him as well. They refer to Him as the Son of God. They see in Him someone who operates in this same spiritual realm where they're accustomed to operating. Now, their power has blocked the way to men. Matthew gives us a much more succinct account of this incident than the other Gospels do, but he includes that point that these demon-possessed men have blocked the way for everyone else. But Jesus, His very presence draws them forward, clearing the path that has been blocked. They challenge His authority essentially by trying to apply His own rules to Him. They're not even opposing Jesus' plan. They're just inquiring about, has He got the timing wrong? Like, have you come to cast us out to torment us before the time? They're not saying you don't have the right to do this. They're just saying, aren't you supposed to do this later? It's an interesting phrase that they use, before the time. So they understand the timing of Jesus' work. Right? They know that a reckoning is going to happen. They just don't think it's supposed to be happening yet. When His kingdom comes, then of course there's going to be a casting away of the powers of darkness, a consignment to punishment. It's just not supposed to happen yet. That's for the future. Right now, they suppose, we're supposed to reign. This is our time, not yours. Now the darkness reigns. What are you doing here? You've come too early. They have a sense of the complexity of the kingdom here, or at least they're about to learn one. Their servility to Jesus knows. They understand His power. They know that Satan, their master in the wilderness, has tried and failed to overcome this authority and has run away. And now they approach the victor in that battle And all they can do is beg Him for favors. They know His power, but they don't understand truly the nature of His kingdom. They don't imagine it has arrived yet, but in fact, has. In this moment, we get a glimpse of that paradoxical nature of the kingdom of Christ. That that nature that we summarize in the phrase already and not yet that the kingdom is already here, that Christ has already established His authority. He has already bound the strong man Satan and is plundering His goods. And yet, that kingdom has not yet come to fullness. That final judgment has not yet taken place. But occasionally, in His earthly ministry, Jesus does things. He gives signs that that almost seem to, to bend the timeline so that the not yet intrudes upon the already, and we get a glimpse of what is to come. Unfortunately for the demons, the glimpse of what is to come for them doesn't work out too well for them. So they have an alternative to propose. If you won't let us reign in the lives of men, we could reign in the lives of pigs. Pigs are unclean animals. This area of the Gadarenes is a Gentile area. Otherwise, a herd like this wouldn't even exist. Surely, Gentiles are beneath the notice of the Jewish Messiah. And if Gentiles are outside the scope of His interest, then surely pigs 
or even worse, there could be nothing, nothing here that Jesus has less interest in than pigs. And so they ask, give us the thing you couldn't possibly care about. Let us have that. We ask for nothing more than that. If we cannot rule here in the men, let us rule elsewhere, even if it's the lowest kind of dominion possible. Which is ironic when you think about it. Just four chapters ago, Satan, their Lord, was offering Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth. You can reign over everything that there is, and all you must do is serve me. And now his minions go on their knees to Jesus begging to have a kingdom over pigs. Milton's Satan, John Milton's, not from the Bible, by the way, from Paradise Lost, says it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. And here these demons ironically echo that sentiment. Like they would rather rule over pigs than to rule over nothing at all. In Luke 15, when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, remember when the prodigal has his rock-bottom moment? When he has his moment of clarity? It's when he's forced to find common cause with the pigs. When he's forced to eat the food of those unclean animals. He cannot conceive of himself sinking lower than that. It makes him willing to go back, groveling to his father, and ask to be a servant in the household where he used to be a son by right. That's how humbling it is to find himself with the pigs. And yet the demons beg for it. This is a debased and a desperate request on their part. They're asking Jesus to grant them authority over the lowest thing conceivable. These pigs are worthless. They're unclean. They can mean nothing to you, Jesus. Let us have them. You can almost imagine... The words of Abraham Kuyper at this moment ringing in the story when he writes, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Including pigs, apparently. Because when Jesus consents to their request, speaking his only word in this story, he says, go, things do not go the way the demons expect them to. Jesus has not given them what they seek. He's given them something they have no ability to rule over. And he's done it, apparently, as a demonstration of their powerlessness. The pigs do the rest. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But first, skipping over the pigs for a moment, let's think about the people and their response. The authority of Jesus makes the people of the city nervous. The herdsmen who witness this respond exactly the way the woman at the, at the well responds in John 4. They, they rush to tell what Jesus has done, especially his liberation of these demon-possessed men. The power that he has demonstrated over a force they could do nothing about. They were powerless against. And when they tell the story, all of the city comes out. They come up to greet Jesus, another gesture of acknowledgement, and it seems as if this is going to go the way John 4 does. The people are sort of gathering around to hear what Jesus has to say. It builds up to that moment. But when this story ends, it ends with the people having responded, making a request that Jesus goes away. Jesus says to the demons, go. 
And then the human beings, liberated by the authority of Jesus, say to Jesus, go. Their response mirrors that of the demons. They too test, challenge, push back against the good authority of Jesus Christ. It's ironic, as we'll see, the pigs reject something that the human beings are willing to make peace with. They want Jesus to leave for the same reason that the leper and the centurion went to him, because of his power, because he could change the fabric of reality. It was a wondrous power, they had to admit. The way into the tombs had been blocked. These demon-possessed men were unstoppable. Now that that was resolved, that was actually a benefit to them. But they had lost a vast herd of pigs in the process, and that really cost them something. This authority of Jesus was unpredictable. It was uncontrollable. Jesus did things you wanted him to do, and he did things he, he, he shouldn't have done. That he didn't anticipate the effects they would have on you, seemingly. The same power that made the broken whole could break the system that surrounded it. Could break the system that the human beings had made peace with and that they relied on. Some people say that these people rejected Jesus because their livelihood depended on this herd of pigs. And by sacrificing those pigs, He had really cost them something. In the same way, That when the gospel reached Ephesus and people started turning away from the goddess, the idol makers' livelihood was threatened and they organized riots to protect themselves. But in both cases, we can be a little more precise. It's not just that livelihoods are being threatened. It's that authority, that rulership is at stake. That there is power to exploit, power to provide And if Jesus has that power, it takes the power away from those who would abuse it. In this story, there are two darknesses to reflect on. There's the spiritual realm of demons, but there's also the exploitative realm of men's hearts. The demons want to rule at least the worthless things, and the men seem to have wanted something similar to profit from what is unclean. If the demons and the idols prevail, if the darkness reigns in this world, the world may be a terrifying place, but it can be a place where those of us who are willing to make peace with the darkness can get ahead. In fact, we can do pretty well once we've accepted the way things are. If the darkness reigns, then exploitation isn't a sin It's logic. It's the way of the world. At worst, it's a necessary evil. But if light reigns, if Christ has authority, then those who now exploit are expected to serve. And that would turn everything upside down. It's no wonder they begged him to leave. His arrival in authority threatened a world that they had made peace with despite the bad. In a bad world, they could justify being bad themselves. But in a world of light, where could they hide? Where could they turn? Jesus had called His disciples to follow Him in a fallen world. 
That's like saying, I want you to fight the same battle. I'm just going to take away the weapons. I want you to live in this world. I'm just not going to let you do the things you have to do to get ahead in this world. I want you to confront this reality, but I'm going to take from you all of the things that you use to, to, to slay your enemies and to harden your heart against them. I'm going to take them away, and instead I'm going to give you armor of the Spirit. I'm going to take away the sword that you've wounded people with, and I'm going to replace it with my Word which gives life. I'm not going to let you harden yourself to the world around you. I'm going to armor you in the Spirit who calls you, who invites you into fellowship with the world around you. That's the call of Jesus. He is taking so much away from us, or so it seems, that our natural reaction is to say, go, go, we beg you, leave. Don't disturb us. Don't turn our world upside down. Let us keep the things that we've made peace with. It's great if you want to take care of the big evils, but don't try to turn everything right side up. It's an astonishing parallel to see the way that the demons and the humans are operating with a similar mindset. Always concerned about keeping some little shriveled, depraved piece of power instead of handing it all over to the one it belongs to. The pigs were pigs. The pigs may have been unclean, but the pigs are the ones in this story who have us a lesson to teach. Those pigs have agency in a way that we often deny to them. When we read this story, the way a lot of people interpret it, it goes something like this. Jesus casts the demons into the pigs, and the demons, because they're bad, say, hey, let's drive the pigs over the side and destroy them. Which makes absolutely no sense if you consider the request of the pigs. They want a place to rule and reign. If it can't be over the people, they want to live in the pigs. They want to rule over the unclean realm, at least. They're not looking to destroy it. They're looking to feed on it, to exploit it. So how can you account for what happens to the pigs? Matthew doesn't say the demons drove the pigs over. He says the herd went. The herd did it. The pigs acted in this story the way that Matthew tells it. The destruction of the pigs isn't imposed upon them by the demons. You might think of it as like a rebellion, an uprising of the pigs. A way to refuse the demonic rule that has been asserted over them. Or a way to do what I like to call breaking the idolatrous form. It's the same thing I imagine happened at Jericho. We have across in the big classroom a wall of Jericho. Uh, It's made of paper affixed to the real wall, brick by brick. And every week when I come in and expect it, a few bricks have fallen down, which is not exactly how it goes in the Bible. They have to be put back up until the time. If you go now, today, and I encourage you to do that, you'll see an interesting handwritten sign next to the wall of Jericho. It says, please keep the walls of Jericho up. Which is one sign I never expected to see in church. 
But that was the problem with Jericho, keeping those walls up, because when the people of God marched around it and the trumpet sounded, the, the stone in the walls just didn't want to stand. It fell down before the people of God, brick by brick. If you've heard me give my lecture on what made Dagon bow, you know my speculation about why the idol of Dagon fell down on its face before the Ark of the Covenant. Dagon wasn't there. Dagon's not real, but the stone was real, and it belonged to God. I like to think that in that moment when the human beings refused to worship Him in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, the stone just did what Jesus says stone will do. When the people are silent, it cried out. It went down, it bowed, and it broke the idolatrous form that men had given it. Those pigs may have been unclean, but they refused to live under the yoke that the human beings in the city were content to make peace with. And instead, they preferred death to submitting to the darkness. Which kind of reminds me of Paul's words in Romans 8. He says, The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. When I think about those pigs and their willingness to be freed by death from a state of affairs that human beings were willing to make peace with, it says something about our relationship to the darkness. It says something about that all-too-human tendency to become obsessed with the things we tell ourselves that we fear. You may ask yourself, well, how should I think about these things? If I'm not going to obsess over them, if I'm not going to give myself over to endless speculation, then, then what am I going to think when I confront this reality? For an answer to that question, I would turn you to the great theologian Don Draper from Mad Men. There's a very memeable moment where he finds himself in an elevator with someone displeased with his actions, and he turns to Draper and he says in a really sort of pitying way, I feel sorry for you. Draper turns to him and he says, I never think about you. When the demons come, when the temptation comes, when the voice in your head tells you that you're not worthy, that you're not good enough, that you should make peace with the darkness, that there is no hope, that there is no salvation, when they come up to you and say, I feel sorry for you, the way you should think about them, the way you should respond is, huh, that's funny, I don't think about you. Because the one you serve should fill your thoughts. The Christ who has authority over all that has given you the freedom not to worry what they think about you. Not to be concerned about how to make peace with the darkness, how to compromise with the world all around you. You don't have to think about it. You can think about Him instead. That takes care of the rest because He has authority over it. Now, sure, I understand if we end with the pigs, it seems like I'm saying two options. Either... Make peace with the darkness or plunge to your watery death like the pigs. Fortunately, you have a better alternative. You do have a different choice. Like the prodigal son, you have a better option, which is to return to the father. 
which is to realize that you may find yourself in the same boat as the pigs, but you don't have to stay there. You could just go home. Like the people of the city, when you come to Jesus, when you see him, you don't have to ask him to go. Instead, you could just say, stay. You have another option. Your option is to just be free. Don't submit to the darkness. Don't walk in fear of it. Don't obsess over it. Instead, to borrow the words of a Lutheran hymn that we sing here at Grace from time to time, praise the one who breaks the darkness. Let your heart be full of Christ. As the third verse of that song says, praise the one true love incarnate, Christ who suffered in our place. Jesus dies and rose for many that we may know God by grace. Obsess over that. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.